0: So, so John, who is actually the author of the book that we're studying, the Gospel of John, and then Andrew and Philip and Peter and Nathaniel. And if you will um, remember back to verse 46, uh, Philip had already recognized that Jesus was this promised Messiah and had already chosen to go and to follow him, responding to the initiative of Jesus' call on his life to come and to follow And Philip went to Nathaniel and he says, Hey, this is the guy we've been waiting on. Come and and see what he's all about. And basically, Nathaniel said, Are you kidding me? What good thing comes from where? Nazareth. Jesus' hometown. That little podunk slap-out kind of place. Nobody good comes out of slap-out. Charlie and Marty have a lot of good friends up there. Hey, it's a good place. But this little podunk Nazareth, Jesus' hometown... What good thing comes from there? That was Nathaniel's criticism or Nathaniel's question or at least his doubt. And do you remember how Philip responded to Nathaniel? He said, come and see. And Grady highlighted what I thought was just a great insight. And he used the words, this was a simple invitation. A simple invitation. And I wrote down in my notes, a simple invitation invitation because I thought it was really cool that Philip, who had already been had the revelation and and responded to the initiative of God's call on his life, that indeed this was Jesus, the Messiah, the promised son, he didn't bother trying to defend or to debate or to convince or to prove to Nathanael that, hey, this is the promised Messiah. He simply said, Come and see. And in essence, what he was saying was come and see who Jesus is and what he says he will do. Because if you will see for yourself and taste and see that the Lord is good, then I don't have to convince you. And it really struck me in my spirit as he said those two words, simple invitation, that maybe far too often we get into the mindset of trying to convince people to come. Trying to convince people that Jesus is who He says who He is. And He does what He says He's going to do. And He will do what He says He's going to do. And He's always faithful throughout all of human history. And I just wondered and, and kind of was reminded, would we be better evangelists if we just simply said, come and see? And if we get resistance, we continue on in our fellowship of Jesus. And we allow the Lord to do his bidding and his work as often as possible going back and saying, you want to come see? But if not, then we continue on in our fellowship and we not get bogged down especially on social media trying to convince people, hey, this is really what's going on here. Just come and see. And so I wrote special or simple invitation. But then I also wrote this, incredible opportunity. Simple invitation, but incredible opportunity. And we're going to walk this morning through the first 12 verses of the second chapter of John and look at the first miracle of Jesus and see one of these most incredible opportunities that Philip and Nathaniel and Peter and John and Andrew and others were allowed to experience as firsthand eyewitnesses. And so let's stand together as we read the text this morning. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and it says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars that were there for Jewish purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone, who serves, the good, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then they bring the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs. And Jesus did this at Cana in Galilee. And He manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. After this, He went down to Capernaum with His mother and His brothers and His disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray together this morning. Jesus, thank You for Your Word and the gift that it is that You have revealed Yourself in Your Word. And that You have made Yourself known to us through Your Word. But Lord, remind us this morning that You are truth. And You are the Word. And so we don't study for the sake of understanding. But we ask that You would enlighten us that we might know Jesus, the risen Savior. The miracle worker. The one who performs signs and wonders. And the one who helps us to believe. Lord, we pray You would do Your work. In our minds and hearts this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So just a reminder from the introduction of the book of John about the structure of this particular gospel. This book is broken down into four main segments. First, the prologue, and then the, um, the book of signs, and then the book of glory, and then the epilogue. And, and this second section, the book of signs, is where we are today. And we're going to get a glimpse into this incredible opportunity that Philip invited Nathanael to come and to experience and to come and be a part of. We're going to see that Jesus, as we've just read, performs his first miracle. And John records in this gospel that there are seven miracles um, that he gives witness account to that he saw Jesus do. But we know that there were many others besides just the seven But John records seven. And we're going to look specifically at this first one, which we've just read about. I want to jump down before we kind of dig into this text to chapter 20 and look at verses 30 and 31. So if you've got your text with you there, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And the reason for going here before we look at the details of this first miracle is I want us to be reminded of what is the purpose of miracles in the first place. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. And so John himself gives evidence that this is not an exhaustive record of all of the miracles of Jesus, that He did more than these that He had recorded in His Gospel in the presence of His disciples. But these are written, here's the purpose, so that, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. And so the purpose of the signs, the purpose of the miracles, the reason that John and the other Matthew and Luke and Mark record the miracles of Jesus is to express to those of us from then until now, That Jesus was a miracle worker, not so that we could stand in awe that He does cool stuff, but so that we might believe that He was indeed the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the One who had come to receive, to rescue, to ransom, to redeem. The One who had come to make His Father known and to reveal the glory of God. And so the theme of this morning is simply this. The miracles of Jesus reveal His glory and they help us believe. The miracles of Jesus reveal His glory and they help us believe. That's what we're going to identify as we walk through this first 12 verses in the second chapter of John. But before we go there, I just want to ask you a question. Where does your faith stand this morning is it in the miracle worker is it in the one true most high god is it in the promised messiah who has revealed his glory and the glory of his father is it strong is it steadfast is it consistent or is it weak is it wavering is it compromising is it cluttered with doubt because as we walk through and see this miracle that Jesus performed, the goal is not for us to just gain some historical perspective or a little bit more information about this account that John records that happened at this wedding in Cana. The, the point of this morning is not to discover, was it alcoholic wine or Welch's grape juice? But we are going to talk about that. The, the point of the message this morning is simply, is our faith in the one Who gives us faith? Is our faith in the One who has the ability to prove Himself faithful? Are we following after the way these first five were called the Jesus who is the promised Messiah and is capable of transforming our lives by doing an invisible supernatural work that takes a heart of stone and turns it to a heart of clay? That takes the old and replaces it with the new. That takes dead and turns it into life. And darkness and turns it into light. The purpose of the miracles of Christ is to reveal His glory. And in so doing, to build, us, to build our faith. To help us to believe. But there in verse 1, it says that this happened on the third day. And this is specifically referring to the third day since the calling of Philip and Nathanael. And so this is two days later after Philip and Nathanael had been called to come and to follow Jesus. It says that it happens in Cana. And Cana is about nine miles north of Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. It's a little hill country. And John is the only one who records about this area of Cana. And specifically, what's the point? Well, potentially one of the reasons for getting this insight is that those who knew this Area would have known that in the period of time that Jesus left his home and had called these disciples and had trekked through the things that we've walked through through chapter 1, that it would have been physically possible for him in this matter of a couple of days to journey and to walk this little trek up into this area called Cana there in Galilee. And then it says that there at Cana, the mother of Jesus, and we know that her name is... Mary. But notice here, in the same way that John does not identify himself by name, John does not identify Mary by name either. Throughout this account, he refers to her as the mother of Jesus. And scholars believe that a reason for that is that this is a the theme keeping with the entire gospel that promotes the idea and the character trait of humility. That the emphasis here is not on Mary because of who she is, but it is identifying her simply with being the mother of Jesus. And we know, according to the rest of Scripture, that Mary was indeed a humble lady. And it, we also know that it is her humility that enables her to trust the Christ, who is her Son, to also be her Savior. And we're going to look at that a little bit more as we continue throughout this uh, verse. But if you'll jump over to um, verse 2 there, it says, um, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with His disciples. And so, Jesus was not a wedding crasher. Okay? He had an invitation, but it is possible that they were short on wine that we'll see in verse 3 because potentially... Mary was the one who was most intimately connected to the family of the ones being married. And and potentially, Jesus and His disciples had arrived to visit with Mary and had been invited along by Mary to attend the wedding. And potentially, all of this is speculation, and why does it really matter? It doesn't. Okay, But potentially, there was a shortage of wine because they had come, invited, but not necessarily... RSVPing early enough for them to get enough wine. Okay? So we don't know all that. A lot of that's speculation, but the point is this Mary was invited and she goes, and Jesus and his disciples go as well, and they were invited. They were not wedding crashers. Okay? And then in verse 3 it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, let's just get into the whole wine issue here. Okay? There are more than a dozen terms in the Hebrew and the Greek in the Scripture that refer to the word wine. And the specific word that is used here is the word oinos, which is a Greek word that specifically means a general type of wine. It might be more literally translated um, according to its Hebrew word, something that means the fruit of the vine. It might be more literally translated according to the Hebrew word Yagin, which would mean juice of the grape. But, oh, you Baptist theologians, don't get too excited about that. Okay? It simply might mean what is pressed out. But there are specific terms in the Hebrew and in the Greek that would refer to a strong drink, a wine that was specifically fermented, and there are also terms that would have referred to a wine that specifically was not fermented. And this is not the term that was used. This is oinos, the generic term for wine. This specific term is used 32 times in the New Testament. Okay? If John wanted to specifically say that this was not alcoholic or fermented wine, he might have used the word related to the Hebrew tirosh, which means grape juice, okay, in its most pure natural form, not fermented. Or, there's one time in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, when the angel goes to Zechariah, and he's saying, you're going to have a son, and his name is going to be John, and he's going to be the front runner of Jesus, and this is what his life is going to look like. He says, he shall not be drunk with wine. And that's the only time in the New Testament where a specific word for wine is used that specifically is referring to a strong drink or an alcoholic wine. And so this wine at the wedding could have been alcoholic. It may not have been. It may have been fermented. It may not have been. But it is definitely wine, okay? And it is definitely a generic term that is used most often throughout the New Testament. So what does that mean? It means if you're a teetotaler, you're right. It means if you're not, you're right. Okay? The point here is not at all, is this alcoholic wine, did Jesus drink fermented grape juice? Or was he a Welch's man? Okay? Now, I do want to have a little aside here and say that the Baptist church has done a really bad job of lying to you through a long, 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 long history to say every time wine is referred to, it's grape juice. Okay? And we do a disservice by just having grape juice here on Sunday mornings, but I'm, that's just personal. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not a drinker, and I never have been. But I will say this. It is clear in Scripture that wine is not always grape juice. And so you have to look at the bigger picture of what God says to us about the consumption of alcohol, the consumption of wine. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we are warned not to be drunk on wine. But even a higher standard. You know there was the law before Jesus. And then Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then, so fulfilling the law, He always executed a higher standard. Not a compromise, but a higher standard. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we're warned not to be a stumbling block. You can eat what you want to eat, and you can drink what you want to drink, but don't stumble your weaker brother. And so... There's definitely context within the whole council of Scripture to be careful about how you consume alcohol. There's definitely context within the whole council of Scripture not to be irresponsible, but for, to make this just a Baptist thing that it's always grape juice and never not, that's not accurate. Continuing on off of my soapbox. Mother of Jesus, we know Mary, goes to Jesus and says, there's no why. Notice this. She simply makes a statement. She does not make an overt request. She simply informs Jesus of what's going on. Now, implicit to her statement is a covert request. Hey, do something about this. Folks are about to be disgruntled in this is speculation. They may blame us because you didn't bring your fair share. Okay? We don't know that, but... Some people speculate about that. But watch this. Her faith is so strong in Jesus' ability to do something about the issue that she does not go to Him with a solution. She just presents to Him the problem. I've got a question for you. question for myself. When we pray, do we simply by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present our request to God so that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? Or do we go to God and say, here's the problem, here's the solution. When you get on the page with me and get it worked out, let me know because I'll be a lot better off than I am today. A lot of times when we pray, we've already figured out what we expect God to do and we're just waiting on Him to do it. But Mary goes to Jesus and just simply lets Him know what's happening here. Fully trusting that whatever He chooses to do about the problem or the challenge or the issue is going to be okay with her because His plan will be better than her plan. What a challenge to us to be faithful to present our requests to God, but to fully trust Him that whatever He decides and whatever His answer might be will be better than the one that we can concoct for ourselves. Let this cup pass from me. That's what I want, but not my will, but Yours, Lord, be done. Jesus replies to her in a way that a lot of people have worried about because this seems a little bit disrespectful, okay? It was not. Um, The way that he called her woman could be more accurately translated in our vernacular as mother. Uh, The NIV is not always a good translation, but it gets it pretty good right here, and it says, dear woman. So we read it, and it seems a little bit harsh. Jesus is not being disrespectful to Mary when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? But what he is saying is very important. And what he is saying is, this isn't about you and it's not about me. This is about my father's business. Even though you're my earthly mother and I am going to hear your request and you'll see in a minute do something about it, I'm not here trying to fulfill an earthly or a man's agenda. I'm here about my father's business and I will do what my father tells me to do. And I think that's very important for us as we think about the influences of our life and we think about the agenda that we might have for ourselves or for our family or that they might have for us. That it's great to be respectful of each other and it's great to love each other and be tolerant and all that fun stuff, but at the end of the day, we answer to a higher authority. And we answer to the One who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Most High God. And I just wonder as we present our request to Him and trust Him for the answer and then move on to flesh out going about our daily business, if we were only answering to Him and not trying to fulfill our own agenda or please somebody else, how that might impact us or change our attitudes or change our behavior. But He says, My hour has not yet come. The hour that He's referring to here, the ultimate hour, is referring to His death and resurrection and ascension. This isn't referring to, hey, it's not time for me to do my first miracle and let the cat out of the bag. This is referring to His ultimate glory, which is to come, which is going to be manifested in His death and resurrection and ascension. And He knows that this isn't the right time. Mary may or may not have understood what He's starting to talk about when He says that it's not my time. But He does kind of... Some scholars say this is cryptic speak. Some people say it's a prophetic riddle. He kind of gives her some information that would make sense to her and kind of helps her to understand what he's talking about. At the same time, understanding she doesn't fully comprehend what this hour is that he's speaking of. But there is a reference here, or could be, to Jeremiah 31.12 or to Hosea 14.7 that simply is referring to the messianic age of the kingdom blessings when the wine will flow liberally is what those verses say. And the idea here is that Jesus knows she might have some point of reference from that Old Testament perspective of those promises of when the wine would flow liberally. And he's saying it's not yet time for the wine to flow liberally, but in keeping with your request, we're going to let it flow a little bit. Okay? That's kind of what's going on here. And, and the point really is this. Again, when my Father is ready is when the full revelation will take place. But in these signs and in these miracles, the emphasis not being the sign or the miracle, the emphasis not being the wine or the issue, the emphasis being the one who is at hand who He is listening to, whose orders He is marching under, what authority He comes from, and the way that God is manifesting Himself in this moment. And so He says, My hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, again, fully trusting in what Jesus would do, but not knowing what that would be, do whatever He tells you. Her direct statement to these servants is what scholars believe shows that she was probably the one most intimately related to the family. And maybe the one with the original invitation to the wedding. I think what her direct statement means is that she's female. Okay? (laughs) She's a woman. (laughs) She doesn't need to be intimately connected to these people to say to them directly what's on her mind. She thought it, she said it, okay? And she said it directly, and she expects them to do something about it. But my wife's not here, so I can say that. (laughs) She says this, Do whatever He tells you, fully believing that what He will tell them to do will be consistent with His Father's will. Truly believing whatever He tells them to do will be what is best, For everybody there at the wedding. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there. The reason they were there was for Jewish rites of purification. This is referring to a physical ceremonial cleansing that all of the Jews would have gone through in washing their hands. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So before we get ahead of ourselves and see the miracle, let's slow down and look at the details. Math majors six jugs, 20 to 30 gallons of water each, okay? That means there's between 120 and 180 gallons of water. Let's meet in the middle and say there's 150, okay? This is not like a bottle or two of wine or grape juice. This is 150 gallons of water that's about to be instantaneously, miraculously turned from H2O to something either fermented or not, however you want to believe that, Okay, But something that could be consumed by those at the wedding for the purpose of proving who this man was that was standing in their midst. To reveal His glory so that their faith might be built and so that they might believe. Verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8. And He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, And so they took it. Somewhere in between the time that he goes to these jars and now, he turned this water into wine. Instantaneously, supernaturally, miraculously. But don't miss what's happening here figuratively. These jugs and this water was intended for a very familiar ceremonial cleansing, a physical washing of the hands that the Jews would have been intimately familiar with. And now he's taken this, which was intended for a physical ceremony, and he's doing a spiritual, supernatural thing with it. All of the seven um, miracles that are shown to us through John are laid out like this. We talked about this already. The miracle and then an explanation about it. And so verses or chapters 2 through 4 kind of display this miracle. And then the theme throughout the next couple of chapters is this theme that the old is gone and the new has come. And this miracle of Jesus taking this physical water, which would have been intended for a physical, familiar ceremonial cleansing, is being changed and the focus is moving to something eternal, something supernatural, something spiritual, something not physical. He tells them to draw it out, take it to the Master. They took it. Verse 9. When the Master of the Feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although those who had drawn it out knew, they saw the miracle, right? They knew that it was water. They knew now it was wine. But the Master of the Feast did not know that. And so he called the bridegroom and he says, hey, guy, look, everybody brings out the best at the beginning. That way, everybody's having a good time. And when people go home early and there's not as many people hanging around, everybody thinks you threw a great party and then you slip into cheap stuff and everybody still thinks you're cool. Okay? that's kind of what he's talking about here. But he says you didn't do that. You have now brought out the best stuff. Notice he doesn't say the first stuff you brought out was not good. They actually had had good wine before it ran out. Because the host or the bridegroom was keeping within their tradition of bringing out the good stuff first. But even though that was good, whoa, this is better. Now some people say it was better because it tasted better. Some people say it was better because it was stronger. Again, we don't know that in the text here. You can... Speculate how you want to. But what we do know is what came out originally was okay and consistent with what they would have expected, but now this was better. And it just makes us ask the question, why do we hold on to trying to get things our way when our way at best is good, but God's idea and plan for us is always better? What He has for us is always better than what we have for ourselves. And so why would we choose to settle for something less? Verse 10. He said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. Same thing that John says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says right here in verse 11. Verse 11. Verse 11. Thank you. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested His glory. And the disciples believed in Him. Remember, the disciples stepped out with Him originally to follow Him to this point on faith. Maybe because they believed it was the Son of God. Maybe because their brother said that it was the Son of God. Maybe because, like Nathaniel, they were in doubt just going to see if it was or not. But at this point, everybody is convinced. And here's the thing that I always tell people that are searching for truth. Search wherever you want to search. Search high, search low. Search whatever religion you want to check out. Check them all out. Whatever you want to do. But don't do this. Don't exclude Jesus in your search. Don't exclude Christianity as an option. God loves you enough. He's merciful enough. He's patient enough. He's sovereign enough that He lets us search. But don't exclude Christ from your investigation. And when you experience Him and you come and see like Nathaniel did what it is that He can do, And more importantly, that reveals to us who he is, which reveals to us things that we know we can't find here in this world or in another religion or in another way or through another channel. Then we can believe. And so my prayer for us as believers is that we would simply invite people to come and see the way that Philip did. Because we don't have to convince them or persuade them. We can trust the way that Mary did that Jesus is who He says He is. And He does what He says He's going to do. And in His timing and in His plan, in His sovereignty, under His authority, He's going to reveal Himself the way that He chooses to for His glory. And when He does, we will be changed. When He does, the old will pass away and the new will come. When He does, our faith will be built And we will believe. I want to jump over to. Just a little devotional from Oswald Chambers. My utmost for his highest. I think sums this up well. It says as you begin to live. The life of faith in God. Fascinating and physically gratifying. Possibilities will open up before you. These things are yours by right. But if you are living the life of faith. You will exercise your right. To waive. You're right. God sometimes allows you to get into a place of testing where your own welfare would be the appropriate thing. If you were not living the life of faith. But if you are, you will joyfully waive your right and allow God to make the choice for you the way Mary did. Allow God to make the choice for you. This is the discipline that God uses to transform the natural into the spiritual through obedience to His voice. Whenever our right becomes the guiding factor of our lives, it dulls our spiritual insight. The greatest enemy of the life of faith in God is not sin, but good choices which are not quite good enough. The good is always the enemy of the best. In this passage, it would seem that the wisest thing in the world, the passage here was from Genesis, would have been for Abram to do what he wanted to do. It was his right, and the people around him would have considered him to be a fool for not choosing. Many of us do not continue to grow spiritually because we prefer to choose on the basis of our rights instead of relying on God to make the choice for us. We have to learn to walk according to the standard which has its eye focused on God. And God says to us, as He did to Abram, walk before Me. The fiery furnaces are there by God's direct permission. It is misleading to imagine that we are developed in spite of our circumstances. We are developed because of them. It is mastery in circumstances that is needed, not mastery over them. Let's pray together as the praise team comes. Lord, we are grateful for Your Word and what it teaches us about You and how it reveals to us Your glory and how it causes our faith to be built so that we might believe. Lord, I pray this morning if there is anyone here who is not a believer, that You would do the supernatural, invisible, life-changing, transformational work of taking the scales from their eyes and changing their heart of stone to a heart of clay and letting them hear and see and receive. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here who is in need of a miracle, that You would remind us that You are a miracle-working God and You have the ability supernaturally to change what we are bound by physically. And spiritually, you can do something completely different. And something absurd. Something that doesn't make sense. Something that we could not expect otherwise. And Lord, I don't know if that's a physical, a spiritual, an emotional challenge or issue that we might be confronted with this morning. But like when Greg prayed, Father, we know that there are many of us who have physical and spiritual and emotional challenges in our life. Sin issues, Lord. Health issues. We pray this morning that we would like Mary come with a simple, humble, unassuming request and watch You do miraculous, abundant, generous things on our behalf for Your glory in Jesus' name. As we stand, Pastor Grady will be here at the front. If you would like for him or one of the elders to pray with you, they'll be available. If not, the altar is open for you to come and do your bidding with the Lord.